This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Garrett Washington, Assistant Professor of History in the Department of History at UMass Amherst. Dr. Washington is the editor of Christianity and the Modern Woman in East Asia, forthcoming from Brill in December 2018. Dr. Washington, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me, Christian. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Often when we think about religion in the Meiji period, the thing that comes to mind is, is of course, Shinto and, and the relationship between the Meiji state and Shinto and some of the policies separating Shinto from Buddhism. But one religion that we don't often think about is Christianity. And of course, you've written about Christianity, some activities of missionaries, including hospitals, the spaces they construct, quite literally in churches. Can you tell us a bit about the impact of the Meiji Restoration on Christianity in Japan? Sure, yeah. So Christianity, as you know, was, was out of the picture for quite some time. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's very present in the Meiji era. The Meiji era really, I think, is sort of the, the pinnacle, if you will, uh, of Christianity's growth and visibility and its sort of direct influence in modern Japan. So Christianity is decriminalized in Japan in, in Meiji 6, 1873. This is mostly thanks to the weight of diplomacy and um, personal, professional relationships between Japanese and Western Christians. And right away, Americans and Canadians and missionaries from Great Britain, they, they rush into Japan to evangelize Japan. But like so much of, of what happens in, in the Meiji period, the case of, of Christianity, uh, in particular Japanese Protestant Christianity, is that the, the Japanese appropriate and they adapt the religion. So in the Meiji era, we see that Protestantism becomes more or less indigenized in Japan. And the movement as a whole, always very small, never more than about 1% of the population of Japan, develops these strong and sometimes enduring ties to Japanese society. So I think Christianity uh, is essential as we think about the Meiji era. It's sort of part of the fabric, I think, in many ways of the Meiji period. Shinto is very important, and, and Shinto and, and Christianity are actually in dialogue in, in several ways in the Meiji era, but it's important to remember Christianity for lots of reasons. If we sort of go back to the beginning of the modern Christian story in Japan, we have Commodore Perry and his ships that arrive and that force Japan to open its doors. And right away, Westerners from the United States and from uh, other countries as well, like Canada, are going to be able to go and reside in Japan. But from 1854 to 1873, Christianity is still an illegal religion, right? So how does this religion, even in that time period, manage to have a presence in Japan? It really comes down to Japan's system of treaty ports, right? And, and the ability of Westerners from various countries to live in Japan and to live under laws from their own countries on Japanese soil. And this is one of the things that was created by the, uh, the Harris Treaty in 1856 and implemented over the next decade and a half or so before the restoration actually happens. So there are Christians in Japan who are Westerners, and they are able to practice Christianity. They're able to build their own churches in the treaty ports, which span all the way from up in Hakodate uh, and Sapporo all the way down to Nagasaki. So all of these spaces are able to be occupied by foreigners who practice Christianity, but it's still illegal. So the big changes that happen, uh, I think I can highlight two big changes that happened. One is French missionaries in 1864 in Nagasaki discover a group of so-called hidden Christians. 
who were Japanese and who'd been in hiding, practicing without uh, any Western uh, contact for sometimes over more than a century. These Christians arrive in Nagasaki and they ask the French Mission Etrangère, so the, the, the French Foreign Missionary Society, to administer the sacraments and to allow them to come back into the church. This is actually happening in a treaty port, right? And so it's, it's able to happen, but the country is watching. Uh, and so this, I think, very quickly throws into sharp relief the, the dilemma of having Christians who are foreigners in Japan, but actually you know, operating in treaty ports. How do you handle that situation when there are Japanese who then are also Christians when it's illegal? As a religion, and there are signs, there are placards throughout the country that make clear Christianity is legal and highly punishable as a religion. So this is a big incident in terms of diplomacy. It's a long story that I won't go into in detail, but these Christians uh, and others that come afterwards are rounded up, and they are imprisoned, and they are taken to several different places. And then there's actually sort of a, a protocol is followed after which they are some are, are exiled or pushed or forced to go into other parts of the country. Some are executed, and others are left in prison. And this goes on for some time. So on the eve of the Meiji Restoration, Christianity exists in Japan, but the context is actually quite, quite difficult and, and dangerous to be a Christian in Japan even then. And at the moment of the Meiji Restoration, even of the Boshin War, they haven't at all worked this out. There's not been a, a consensus about how to handle this. And in fact, in 1868, the the new Meiji government initially reiterates right, the prohibition on Christianity. So it stays illegal. And so we have this moment, again, of, of tension and conflict and uncertainty that precedes the 40 years of, of the Meiji period. If we fast forward a little bit, the 1870s up to the de facto legalization of Christianity in 1833, things change a lot in those first five years. So you mentioned Shinto. There's a lot going on in the background as various parts of Japan begin to try and apply uh, these sort of initially localized efforts to suppress Buddhism and elevate Shinto. But sort of at the same time, in a very, in a very different way, the new government has decided it needs to go and be open to the world and to embrace this new sort of outward looking uh, persona. And so, you know, the first five years of the Meiji period do see the government of Japan looking outward and thinking about Christianity in particular as an important part of that process, about how to appear to the West and the rest of the world civilized, about how to appear humane, and about how to hopefully gain more equal treaty rights with the U.S. and Great Britain. So I guess what I'm, where I'm going with, with this is that the legalization of Christianity in 1873 is sort of the second major moment. I think it sort of serves to, in some ways, counteract the difficulties and the and the constraints and the, the punishments that, that were being meted out against Christianity in the 1860s. And the, the weight of all of this positive energy, the pressure of Westerners on Japan leads to this new development. So it sounds like the missionaries who do come over in the 1870s are operating under this cloud of suspicion that kind of lingers is left over from the Sankoku policies and the kind of anti-Christian exclusionism and, and almost a, a fear of Christianity. How does that impact their efforts on the ground? I mean, you've written about the activities such as hospitals and, and also sermons within the churches. How are they able to counteract some of that suspicion and fear in their own activities? Yeah, a very good question. So, you know, even from 1859, when the first missionaries arrived, they can't be missionaries, right? It's illegal. So they're, they're practicing 
medicine, their teaching, and and the government ha- has in fact made this even easier. The charter oath that was promulgated at the enthronement of the Meiji Emperor in 1868, one of the, the charters is that they're going to seek knowledge throughout the world. And so besides going themselves out into the world to get knowledge, they're also bringing lots of foreigners into Japan. And so the influx of hundreds of oyatoi, right, or foreign experts into Japan on the government dime, as well as probably thousands of private contractors from the West brought to Japan. This really brings many people into Japan who are Christians, some of whom who would like to be missionaries but are not able to do so openly. So up to and then just after the Restoration, we see missionaries and also what I like to call sort of laymen with evangelistic tendencies. They're doing their job. <laughs> to show that Christianity is the religion of the modern West, to sort of marry Christian ideals with Western culture and show that they're sort of a package deal. And they're trying to instill Christian morality in a highly, I would say, highly sort of positivistic worldview into their students and sometimes also their employees. So they operate in that world before it's legalized. But they're very well aware that at some point, things are going to hopefully change in their favor. They're, they're, they're sort of looking forward to that. And the government has given them extra credibility by allowing them to be professors at the Kaisei Gakko, the, the predecessor to the Tokyo Imperial University, by having them be, you know, principals of schools and Echizen, taking of figures like William Griffiths or in, in Nagasaki, there was Guido Verbeck. In uh, Yokohama, there was James Hepburn, figures who would later on become uh, oftentimes would, would, would actually have the title missionary are in this period able sort of to evangelize in sort of a surreptitious way, despite the ban on Christianity. And lastly, you mentioned um, hospitals. And I, I've written in particular about, about a hospital that was opened in 1900. So it's a bit after the beginning of the, the Meiji era. But even in the, in the early Meiji period, we have missionaries like Dr. Berry uh, down in Kobe who operate hospitals. And through these hospitals, they're showcasing the advancement of sort of Western medical knowledge, but they're also showing that Christianity is part of that. Dr. Berry used to give out Bibles as a condition of being treated at his hospital. So these kinds of activities, these kinds of approaches helps to, I think, make Christianity more palatable, even though it was illegal, and also more attractive in this early period. You mentioned that with their teachings, this kind of surreptitious proselytizing, these teachers are also imparting positivism in the students, but also probably introducing new ideas about women and gender. Uh, And I understand you've also edited this book talking about Christianity and the place of the woman in East Asia. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Sure. So this this book that I've edited that's that's going to be coming out pretty soon, it's it's a nine-chapter book. One chapter is by a recent guest of yours, Betsy Lublin, and the chapters are trying to demonstrate that the sort of the ambiguous Christian relationship with modern women in East Asia and the movement for women's rights in East Asia, it did yield some unprecedented opportunities as well for women. Christianity, on the one hand, it reinforced patriarchy and introduced new limiting gender norms from the West in East Asia. But women in, in China and Japan and Korea, they used Christian ideas and institutions and, and networks to acquire new knowledge, to think about and, and take part in new careers, to elevate their social position, and also to access 
the more or less the public sphere. So my work in that in that volume is with, with these questions in particular. So sort of thinking back to the place of women in general, missionaries arrived with very negative ideas about womanhood in Japan. They believed that women in Japan were backwards, that they didn't have any freedoms. They believed that women were confined by a Confucianism that despised women, so to speak. And a lot of their efforts to teach and later on to inspire reform were aimed at trying to liberate women in Japan from the confines of Confucianism, Confucian ideology. But of course, as I, as I mentioned, it's sort of it's a, it's a double-edged sword, liberating women in Japan to be more moral according to Christian standards. What I argue in, in the book and what the other chapters argue and what I also argue in my, my other projects is that there is, amongst these different kinds of confinement, there, there is some liberation, there is some awakening that happens and that empowers women. One of the, the interesting ways that women missionaries in particular are influential in the lives of Japanese women is as role models. And so while the missionaries might be prescribing a certain kind of behavior and certain morals and ideals deeply rooted in American and often conservative Christian values, they also demonstrated things like women speaking in public, women being treated by husbands with respect, women having some leadership roles in organizations. And so these things really rub off. And the recent chapter by Rebecca Copeland talks about this issue in particular and about how the modeling of womanhood that missionaries provided was perhaps as important, if not more important, than the moral messages and the, and the, and the teachings that they provided. So, you know, my work and the work of others, I think, are making clear now that that is one of the important takeaways, uh, one of the important legacies of, of Christianity for women in East Asia is that there were missionaries who modeled a different way of being and a, and a more often uh, more empowered way of being in society. And I understand you're also writing a book about some of the spaces that Christian missionaries construct and, and quite literally the, the churches and, and how oftentimes these churches are almost a hybrid of different religious practices in Japan. Okay, well, so, the, I, so my churches that I work on, they were built by Japanese congregations. And so one of the things that I try and show, first of all, is that the missionary presence is very small at the beginning, and it's almost totally eliminated by the end. So that these are autonomous and independent Japanese churches who are very sort of proud of that fact and who are embracing Christianity as their own. And that's part of how they're able to make Christianity, I think, more Japanese and more palatable and more attractive and mostly more, more influential. So the spaces um, that the Japanese churches build, they begin very simply with in, in the 1880s. And I'm thinking about Tokyo's. I work on Tokyo's four largest congregations, uh, most popular Japanese Protestant churches in the Meiji period. The Hongo Church the Bancho Church, and the Reinazaka Church, which are all three Congregationalist and denominational ties. And the other, and the other church is the Fujimicho Church. So these four churches, they all come into their own in the, in the mid-1880s, and they begin with very small structures. And their structures are, are built in the Waiyo Seichu style, which is a, a hybrid style, right, that is used by for government buildings, official buildings, these kinds of things. So it usually would have maybe like a white clapboard exterior, so a very American, uh, simple American style exterior, but it would have the Japanese style tile roofs, right? Uh, and so the so these kinds of interesting hybrid architectural features make the building stand out right away. 
it sort of stands out as a building that can be seen by an onlooker uh, immediately as an important building. But it also looks different than a, a temple or a shrine, another, another Japanese gathering space for purposes of religion. In my work, I look at the ways in which these buildings evolve. And one of the ways that they evolve is they become bigger and they become more impressive and more grandiose. And an important element in that process is the effort by these Japanese pastors to hire architects who are Japanese, but who are able to, in the Meiji era, right, to draw upon their international exposure and knowledge to make something that is not just a copy of a Western church, an American church or American chapel. The architect for the Hongo church built in 1891 or the Rei church finished in 1917 uh, is Tatsuno Kingo, who was the architect um, of lots of important iconic buildings in Japan, such as the Bank of Japan building, Tokyo Station, etc. And he was a student of Josiah Condor, one of the foreign experts who was brought to Japan, in this case from, from Great Britain, from England. So this building, the church building, uh, it really comes to epitomize the, this mix between a Western-looking space uh, that can be, in fact, very impressive, but built by someone who's Japanese and built by Japanese funds as well and raised by a Japanese congregation. And so it, it, I think it just really, I think, speaks to the hybridity of the Meiji period, right, of all this foreign knowledge and foreign personnel coming into Japan, and then people in Japan who are Japanese being able to appropriate and hybridize and create new things out of that. And talking about the kind of hybridity of the major restoration, all these things coming into Japan, you have issues related to religion and, and gender, flows of, of things around the world. Is this what makes the Meiji restoration impactful in global history? Yeah, so I think the restoration really is important because of the ways in which the country so rapidly and dramatically becomes part of the global system, and directly so. I teach classes on the intro to modern Japan and also on race, religion, and nation in East Asia, uh, and also on the, the woman in modern Japan. And all these classes, I'm emphasizing themes that are common to textbooks and, the, and that are common to most, I think, syllabi on modern Japan, that there's a lot of rupture in the restoration, and that there's a lot of that it was difficult to go from one system to a very new system. My students, you know, they read Shibagoro's Testament, Remembering Aizu. I chose this book because this book, I think, really epitomizes, right, the drastic changes that happened uh, in the span of very few years, right, only a few decades in the Meiji period. Thinking about the Aizu samurai who was, 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 they were trying to protect the shogunate, and then they were imprisoned and unemployed. And then eventually he's integrated again into this new imperial military and the government. So that's that's sort of the the skeleton upon which the class thinks about the restoration. But what I really enjoy, and I, and I should also I should also mention that they're talking about things like that also change like energy and like you know the the economy and politics and communication, all these these kinds of important themes. But what I really think is most interesting about the restoration and what comes after the restoration, the Meiji period. Probably, I guess, two things. One thing would be that there is this marrying of religious, national identity, and nationalist ideology. How these how these three pieces are deliberately intertwined at several levels. When we look at that carefully, we look at the work of Helen Hardacre, we look at James James Kedilar, a recent book also by Walter Skaya, to look at that critical moment when Shinto becomes so influential and so pervasive in Japanese society. And so it's important for those reasons, and, and those are 
things that we talk about a lot in class. But what I think is important in global history is the way in which Japan is able to, while all this is happening, to have such a wide contact with the world. From being relatively isolated, right, having only embassies coming from nearby kingdoms uh, and countries, to being a you know, one of the major uh, great powers of the world and being in contact with, with people across the world. I, I remember reading, you know, there was an article about the protest in the New York Times taking place in New York at the death of Kotoku Shusui after the great treason incident. So the, the level to which the Japanese are all of a sudden everywhere, right? They're in England and they're, they're even in Scotland and Edinburgh sometimes. They're in France, they're in the United States. And they're engaged in a lot of just dialogue with the world. That, I think, is what makes this so interesting, this period. And so I think I focus a lot of energy on thinking about that. Students going abroad, the Japanese government going abroad on the Iwakura embassy, the um, Japanese welcoming foreigners into Japan, the Japanese changing the law to allow Christianity to exist, Japanese changing the law again, 1899, excuse me, to allow for foreigners to officially reside in the Japanese interior. All this exchange and this interaction, I think, is what makes the Meiji period so interesting. And it's part of why Japan, I think, has maintained its place in the world through all the ups and downs of imperialism and, and war. I think it is that they have, I think, embraced this international identity, this international sort of connectiveness that they have, that, that began really in the Meiji period. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website. Meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.